Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Scott, for those songs. That that last song, um, it's one of my favorites. I think I, I said that last time. G has mentioned that I say that a lot about a lot of things. So, but that really is one of my favorites. So, um, we're starting a series that I was in my mind struggling with when to do it. Um, it's kind of become like Matthew, like a beginning of the year thing every year. And there's a lot of lessons that I've wanted to teach topically. But then as I was looking at kind of like my personal sermon calendar, it kept pushing this series farther and farther back. Um, and uh, this is something I've been thinking a while about, about teaching on. At the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, uh, I taught on Acts 1 and 2. And that was a very helpful series of lessons for me. And it seems like that was very edifying for others. And uh, after a bit of time passed, I did a thing like our Matthew Bible classes where I thought, you know, it might be really helpful. Acts is such a huge book that it would take me like a full year probably to teach on it straight through if I just taught on it every Sunday. And Acts chapter 1, so if you'll turn to Acts chapter 1, it gives an outline of the book that um, I've been trying to follow at the beginning of every year. So I've decided at the beginning of every year, at some point, um, I'll teach another section of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus doesn't just outline how the gospel is going to spread, but also the structure of the book of Acts. So we started in the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, looking at Acts chapter 1 and 2, where the gospel starts in Jerusalem. But notice in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7. So it begins in chapters 1 and 2 in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, and in all Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 through 12, where um, I'll be teaching on for the next couple months. And then to the remotest part of the earth, chapter 13 through 28. And what I'll do next year is probably just do some of Paul's preaching trips um, as, a, as a sermon series, and then do like his journey to Rome um, the next year after that. So last year I did um, Acts 3 through 7, which some of you may remember that. Uh, the book of Acts is just such an amazing book, and I think it's easy because it's more historical in nature and less instructive. Um, it can be easy to take for granted the lessons that are in the book of Acts. And one of my main things with teaching uh, through the book of Acts, I want to urge you to not lose your sense of awe and amazement for what God accomplished in the book of Acts. You know, again, I think there can be a familiarity. Um, you know, many of us who have been Christians for uh, decades, grew up with Christian parents, the book of Acts can become very, very familiar to us. Um, but the time it took for God to set up these events, the achievement of what the church was in its beginning what the Christians here were doing. And I know this can be easy to take for granted, but they were doing miracles. Like miraculous things were being done. And I think even that can be easy to take for granted. You can be familiar with, of course they did miracles, but we certainly don't see those things today in that way. And so there's just so many amazing things that happen in the book of Acts that I think are meant to ground us and to inspire us, to convict us, um, and so I hope that as we go through chapters 8 through 12 with Judea and Samaria particularly, um, that these lessons will help you maybe have a deeper sense of appreciation and amazement for this section. 
So you'll notice I've titled this series Portraits of Jesus' Dominion. Uh, Acts 8 through 12 has more personal examples than any other section of the book. Uh, So chapter 8, we have Simon the Sorcerer. Then we have the Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 9, we have Saul converted and then eventually becoming the Apostle Paul. We have Dorcas. Many of you remember Tabitha Dorcas, uh, who was risen from the dead. Uh, Chapter 10, we have Cornelius. And in uh, the end of chapter uh, 11, we have uh, the church in Antioch, which is kind of like another portrait of Jesus' dominion, the church at Antioch. And then we'll finish looking at chapter 12 with Herod and Peter and how Jesus' dominion is illustrated when Herod put Peter in prison, freed him from prison. So we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. So again, portraits of Jesus' dominion, a lot of personal examples that teach us lessons about the gospel and just the reality and the power of Jesus' dominion. And like I said, we're going to be focusing on Samaria and Simon. Uh, I really appreciate Jim's introduction to chapter 8. I I had a lot of that that I was going to review, and that saves some time. Um, Chapter 1, the gospel uh, begins in the book of Acts with Jesus risen from the dead, instructing the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. Chapter 2, we see that happen on the day of Pentecost. Everything that God had ever been doing all comes together in that moment. And 3,000 souls are added to the church, they're baptized, and they become a part of uh, the body of Christ for the first time. Chapters 2 through 7, then, the gospel begins spreading in Jerusalem as tensions continue raising uh, with the Jewish leadership, the government. And there's rumblings of persecution through chapters 3 through 6. And as Jim pointed out, eventually Stephen uh, is put on trial and stoned at the end of his defense. And that results in a very focused persecution um, in Acts 8. So I'm going to read Acts 8, 1 through 4, and then we'll get into some principles of just kind of Samaria, just the region where we see these Christians going, and where the beginning of chapter 8 focuses. So again, we're not going to be going through all of chapter 8, just 1 through 25, particularly focused on Philip, also one of the seven appointed in chapter 6, Philip preaching in Samaria. So Acts 8, 1 through 4. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and that is, again, Stephen, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Again, that's exactly what Jesus said in chapter 1. Except the apostles, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. A um, couple things as we get into the lesson here. Imagine Jesus was a member of this local church. I know that may be kind of like hard to imagine. Obviously, Jesus is in heaven, all that. But just think about one thing. If Jesus was a part of this local church, and I mean like permanently, like he was always here, always at assemblies. You got to talk to him. He talked to you. How do you think that would affect our attitude toward evangelism? Do you think Jesus' presence in this church, his passion for preaching the gospel, his care for lost souls, his concern, his convictions, that people in our community are going to hell and they're lost, and here we are, do you think Jesus' presence would inspire you? That it would convict you in some ways and make you kind of think about, well, maybe how can I think more about evangelism? Man, this is really important. 
That's what we're reading about in the book of Acts. We're reading about people who were most directly influenced by the attitude Jesus had. These were people who spent years with Jesus. Look how it affected them. And why do you think about our country? You know, we are given amazing freedoms here. It's incredible that, you know, our country is not in the situation that so many others are in now and have been very consistently in the past where Christians have governmental persecution that makes it so that they've got to be more discreet, quiet, and kind of under the radar about assembling and what they do. But when you think about the future of this country, what if persecution against Christians that, you know, has been progressing pretty obviously, what's your attitude about the future? You know, is it scary that maybe one day, maybe even soon, there may be a lot more focused governmental persecution against Christians? Do you see that as scary? Or do you have the heart to see that as an opportunity? That maybe, again, God being the ruler of all the nations, this is what the Christians acknowledged when the persecution began in Acts chapter 4. That God, you're ruling. You know, people persecuting us doesn't mean that you don't see it, that you aren't in charge. What if, what if, if our nation begins persecuting Christians much more aggressively, what if God sees that as an opportunity and not a deterrence? And would you be able to see it that way? An opportunity and not a deterrence. I think it's incredible in verse 4. Those who had been scattered went about in great discouragement. (laughs) Those who went about just tried to go on with their lives and make the best of it. No, they went about preaching the word. Everywhere these Christians went, these are not the apostles. This is just Christians and Philip going to new places and unfamiliar and having to start their lives over again. They're, they're leaving their houses, their friends, the fellowship with the Christians that they had had before, and just anywhere they go. Their care is focused on proclaiming Christ everywhere that they are. They go to Judea, Judea and Samaria. Samaria is north, Judea is south. So you'll notice it says in, um, let's see, 5 Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Jerusalem was on like a mountain. So it can be confusing. Down sometimes means north, which is where Samaria is. Uh, Down just means Jerusalem is elevated. So really anywhere you go in any direction, you are going down from Jerusalem to get there. So he goes down slash north to Samaria. Um, But again, they're going north and south. Christians have really kind of been heavily focusing on Jerusalem itself. Doesn't seem like the gospel has been going out of the city very much yet. Time has been passing, persecution arises. Now it starts spreading exactly as Jesus said. You'll notice about Samaria, if you aren't familiar with uh, the territory of Palestine, Galilee is north of Samaria, a pretty good distance. And so Samaria isn't like far off in some Gentile territory. This is really right in the middle of areas where Jesus would have done his ministry. So you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman. And this Samaritan woman began to believe in Jesus as the Christ. She began to proclaim that to other Samaritans. And the Samaritans believed Jesus more strongly than the Jews had. Even seeing miracles Jesus had performed, Jews did not believe Jesus the way the Samaritans did in John chapter 4. And they saw no miracle. It was all just words and conversation The Samaritans widely received him. We'll talk about another instance where they didn't receive him later in the lesson. Um, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, though. 
Has the gospel gone to the Gentiles yet? It hasn't. That's chapter 10. So this is kind of a hard thing to work out. Samaritans aren't like fully Jews, but they also aren't Gentiles either. The Jews hated Samaritans, and it seems like hated is the right word. They really did despise the Samaritans, and it seems like that goes both ways. It seems like the Samaritans also hated Jews. Um, They didn't associate with each other because of 2 Kings 17, a 700-year-old history. Imagine there being a grudge that exists between groups of peoples that goes back 700 years, and a grudge that even seems to be very religiously supported, right? So what happened is the kingdom of Assyria, they exiled northern Israel. This is back in the Old Testament period when Israel was divided between Judah on the south, Israel on the north. In 722 BC, Assyria, a very aggressive and violent nation, eradicated Israel and exiled the nation. What happened, though, is there were Israelites that they let kind of stay in the territory there and they ended up becoming very intermingled with the other nations, which the Jews were forbidden from doing that lawfully. So the Samaritans, in a lot of ways, kind of lost the purity of their identity. They were descendants of Jacob. In fact, the Samaritan woman calls Jacob her father. So she's very aware that as a Samaritan, her lineage is still traced back to Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. So they're still, they are Israelites, they're, they're just their identity has been heavily compromised. So they were mixed with the nations and the cultures of the nations, and they also had uh, false worship. So there was another mountain where they would set up another place of worship, not in Jerusalem. So you remember the Samaritan woman said, you Jews say Jerusalem's the place to worship, as in, you know, we don't agree on that. Like the Jewish people, they worship in Jerusalem, us Samaritans, that's not where we worship. And then, of course, Jesus says, a time, and com- is, time is coming and now is when you will neither worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Suffice it to say, Samaritans would be people that, if I can put it in modern terminology, this would have been viewed as a very liberal place. (laughs) An immoral cesspool. People whose lives were broken. Seems like everything we know historically about Samaria is the woman at the well having had five husbands, And she's living with a man who's not her husband, which it kind of seems like she kind of gave up on marriage. It's like, look, marriage isn't working. I'm just going to live with a guy. That's kind of the Samaritans. Like, this was not a moral people. They didn't worship God correctly, even though they were descended from Jacob. Uh, It was just loose living, a liberal atmosphere. And wow, I think that just highlights how amazing all of this is. I'm going to read 5 through 13 with Philip going down to Samaria then. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, and real quick, this is the first time in the book of Acts where unclean spirits like demon possession is mentioned. That's never been said before yet in the book of Acts with Jerusalem. Uh, So verse, verse seven again, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame, were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Uh, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. 
But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So again, we have Philip here, who we've seen previously. Um, The way that Luke writes the book of Acts will oftentimes give a name or a short event involving someone that is, you'll see that person come later. So like Saul at the beginning of the chapter, Saul is mentioned, and in chapter 9, he comes up again. Stephen is mentioned in chapter 6, then he comes up again on trial. Philip is mentioned in chapter 6, now he comes up again. Uh, Philip will be mentioned much later in the book of Acts when Paul travels to Jerusalem. Philip will be mentioned in the same location he ends at the end of chapter 8 with uh, daughters who are prophetesses, which is interesting, which shows he's been very busy with his household, with others, uh, which is a very good thing. So Philip goes down to Samaria, and he's proclaiming Christ to them. You know, something so simple. That's what the world needs. The world needs us to proclaim Christ. And I've said this before, but I think this is so important, that we do need to talk about specific things with people, but oftentimes when someone doesn't understand the church correctly and what we are authorized to be structurally as a church, what the local church should practice, things like singing without instrumental use, not supporting institutions and social things with our church funds. There are specific things about those practices that are very important. But when someone refuses to believe those things and accept them, it's ultimately a problem with their view of Jesus, not just that one thing. And so I think in the world around us, it's easy to underestimate how much people need to hear more and understand better who Jesus is. I think the more that we talk to Jesus and relate things back to Jesus, the more genuine good interest people can have in what God wants them to be seeing and being changed by. So he's proclaiming Christ, and remember Samaria. This is crowds of people giving him attention. And Samaria was a people who just seemed so lost, so broken. You remember Jesus' controversial uh, little teaching on the Good Samaritan? And, you know, everybody tends to bring up, well, why, why was that so controversial? Because the priest walked by the, herded, the hurt man, the Levite walked by the hurt man, but the Samaritan had compassion and helped him. And you would, you would think, well, Samaritans are awful people. You know, you wouldn't expect a Samaritan to be the one who has compassion, right? The idea is this. The Samaritans for hundreds of years had been viewed by the Jewish people as that's just a lost cause. There's just no reason to associate with them. Stay away from the Samaritans. The gospel is more powerful than that. The gospel restores people who are irreversibly broken. You know, again, we, I think we, we know this intellectually, but I think we, we need to embrace it to the point where it, it changes how we interact with people and see people. It, it changes people where it just seems like their lives are so far gone and so broken, there's just no way. Too much work, too much time, too many decisions need to be made. It's too tangled up, like the woman at the well. You solve this problem of five husbands and the one you're living with is not your husband. This is so tangled up. And Jesus makes it simple. The gospel simplifies these changes that people need to make. And the Samaritans were repenting. They were believing. They were being baptized. And so the gospel, we need to have confidence in it, that it is powerful enough to motivate changes 
in people's lives where they may be deeply rooted in a certain way of living. They may be set or seem very set in their ways and in decisions and in certain habits. That does not change the power of the gospel, right? And so the Samaritans were the perfect audience for the gospel. These are exactly the kind of people that Jesus invested himself in, like the tax collectors and sinners among the Jewish people. But I think another lesson kind of hidden here is Philip himself. I don't get the impression that Philip as a Jew before being converted would have been the kind of person to be so zealous to spend so much time in Samaria and among Samaritan people. The gospel doesn't just have, to, doesn't just have the power to change those people way out there who we may think are hopeless or unreachable. The gospel has the power to change the kind of people that we are. The gospel has the power to change, to change our associations. Because of knowing Jesus and being a man of great faith, the gospel can change a person's capacity and the care that they have to invest in very difficult people. You know, Philip wasn't just going to teach in a synagogue in Samaria, hand them some information, and then head on back to Jerusalem, back to safety. Philip stayed in Samaria for some time here. And you notice in verse um, 13, it says Simon continued on with Philip. And I think what's implied by continuing on is that's not just something Simon was doing, but others that they were eating with Philip, talking with Philip, spending their time with him. And I don't imagine all that time was just easily spent, right? The gospel has the power to change the kind of people we're interested in investing ourselves in. It changes our capacity to give ourselves to difficult people. And then you'll notice in verse, uh, verse 8, there was much rejoicing in the city. And I get that a part of that was the miraculous things that were happening, right? Um, so the people of Samaria who were lame and demon-possessed, those things were being healed. And so there was much rejoicing, I think, because of that. But I think it points to something very relevant, that when we see the reality of the gospel, there is much rejoicing. Do you remember in Luke's gospel, before the parable of the prodigal son, when God finds one sinner who repents, what's God's response to that? What's the response of the angels in heaven? Much rejoicing. If we understand the liberation we've received in the gospel, what, what we've been freed from, where God has put us into, the condition he's brought us into, everything he's given us, like was read in Ephesians 1, if we really get it, there is much rejoicing, no matter what may be going on in our lives. You know, the idea of Acts 8 isn't that Philip was handing out money and making people's life circumstances richer and better and more comfortable. He was teaching Christ to them. And because of the miracles, they understood something about the power and distinctiveness of that message. So Simon himself, a renowned magician, you'll notice in verse 9, he was claiming himself to be someone great. I don't know what that would have looked like, you know, him claiming this of himself. But in verse 10, I mean, people were buying into it. You know, people were saying that not just that this is a great magician, this was a religious thing. They were saying this man is what is called the great power of God. So this wasn't just, again, someone performing card tricks and like impressing people. 
This was something religious in its nature, which I think is helpful to keep in mind. But the difference between whatever Simon's magic or sorcery was, the difference between that and what Simon was doing and also teaching was obvious to everybody. We're going to talk a little bit about this uh, in the next point, this idea of, you know, miracles and why do we not see miracles like we do in the Bible times here in the book of Acts. Um, But I want to point this out here. I have met a lot of people who are obsessed with miracles. Like, it's all they think about. It's like they can't get off that topic. It matters more to them than anything else. And the idea that maybe miracles don't exist like this is seen as blasphemous. And it's just, it's very hard to deal with. What I think is very helpful is try to challenge people to read the kind of miracles Jesus, the apostles, and the early church were performing. Just compare things. I think Simon may have been doing, actually, what people still do today. There are people who claim to perform miracles where I think it's just like Simon, it's magic. You know, they're, they're fooling people. And if you really put it to the test, I've seen, I've, I've met people who call themselves apostles who literally say they can do miracles. I've watched videos that people have sent me saying, look, here's a miracle worker. They caught it on video. Man, if you compare the book of Acts to what people claim, if you are honest, it is obvious that they are charlatans. And when I say charlatans, a charlatan is a fake. It's a phony, right? People may be able to do clever tricks. They might be able to fool people a little bit. But the more familiar we are with the genuine article, here's what they were really doing. Raising people from the dead, healing people who are lame, casting out demons. This wasn't just something hidden in a building at times of assembly. And it certainly wasn't something prideful and rambunctious. It was something that they were doing that was obvious to everybody that it was genuine and miraculous. We don't see that today, period. I'm open by people to be challenged on that. Again, I just encourage them, let's look at the book of Acts and let's see what they did. And I just want you to think, are you able to do or have you ever seen anything that compares with this? And I've had people admit no. And I've told them, well, then no matter what then, we get in the same place where it's not the same thing as we read in the book of, Ma- book of Acts. So why? Why is it so different? And why has that been compromised? For whatever it's worth, we'll talk more about that. And how they became Christians, Christ- Christians goes back to Acts 2, 28 through 31. And I think this is important to review. So you'll notice that um, in verse 12, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Go back to Acts chapter 2. You know, I don't want to take for granted how important it is to review such a basic truth of uh, doctrine and a relationship with God. You know, Acts is very careful to lay a foundation and present a narrative that is consistent with that foundation. In Acts chapter 2, you have the first audience who ask the perfect question, what shall we do? when they're confronted with the gospel for the first time. Peter says this, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 38, what is baptism for? In Acts chapter 8, what were they believing about baptism when they were baptized? What was the teaching of the apostles in early church? There are many churches that if someone says, well, what do I need to be saved? They will say, receive Jesus into your heart. You know, pray this prayer. Just ask God to forgiveness and ask Jesus into your heart. You will not find those things in the New Testament. And I would argue that those are extremely malicious, dangerous teachings that lead people into an extraordinarily difficult uh, belief and security that is not biblical and fundamentally is, is off from God's word. Um, so we need to be careful that we remember uh, what the truth is about salvation, that we're equipped to help people understand that. That's just, that's so important. So as simple as it is, I think we need to remember what's going on in Acts 8 in relation to Acts 2. 14 through 25, where we see things continue with Philip uh, and Simon and even the apostles Peter and John. Let's look at verse uh, 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my, my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the apostles, Peter and John, they hear about the gospel spreading in Samaria, that many of the Samaritans are now believing and becoming Christians. Peter and John are sent down to them so that they can bestow on people miraculous gifts and receive the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts 2.38, there was a promise at the end of that verse that they would be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think through the New Testament, we are shown a pretty clear distinction that there is the gift of the Holy Spirit in salvation, that we become temples of the Holy Spirit, that we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that there's a sense where God gives Christians the Holy Spirit in a personal way. But this is something that I think has miraculous connotation. I think the context bears that out. And I want to talk about that for just, just a moment. Why were miracles so prevalent in the early church? It's a unique time. Um, the Jewish religion is still ongoing. They still have the temple and the altar. And so to have the testimony, as Hebrews chapter 2 would point out, that miracles serve as a testimony 
to the truth of the gospel. That the gospel is not the Jewish religion. It is not a modification of the Jewish religion. It does not have the weakness of the Jewish religion. And as people who had had contact from the apostles, who had been saved by the teaching of the apostles, who were genuine Christians, who had listened to the apostles, who were following their teaching, miraculous ability would testify to the very important distinction that Christians are where God's presence is. It is no longer with the Jewish religion. There is a different power with Christians and particularly associated with Jesus and the apostles. Philip was doing the same things Jesus did in his ministry in Samaria. So it's as if Jesus is still continuing and living through his people. Secondly, not just with distinguishing Christianity from the Jewish religion and testifying to the fact that the gospel is the truth now, it would jumpstart the church. You know, so the spread of the gospel in the beginning of the church age, they don't have all of the New Testament letters yet. You know, the apostles haven't begun writing letters to separate churches at this point. And so having miraculous ability would, again, it would aid the beginning of the church and jumpstart a movement that from this time forward would remain permanent, more as hearing and believing things that we look back on and read. This is no different than other periods of time in the Old Testament, where we see miracles in the time of Moses, times of people like Elijah, but those were, again, jump-starting periods of time, not meant to be permanent kinds of abilities that continued on forever. And uh, really quick, before I move on, Simon in verse 18 saw something really important. The book of Acts is very careful to record the fact that anyone who could perform miracles first had contact with the apostles. Look back at Acts chapter 6 in verse 6. Stephen performed miracles. Philip performed miracles. But look at Acts chapter 6, verse 6, where Stephen and Philip were being put into the work of serving the widows, as Jim mentioned. These they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then it's after that, Luke is careful to record, after that, they had miraculous abilities. And Philip could do miracles again. And if Philip could do miracles, could he transfer that ability to others? So if Philip could do miracles, couldn't he have given everyone else miraculous ability? But what what Simon sees is not through Philip's hands, but through Peter and John, apostles, he saw, not thought, he saw that this ability was specifically given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Miraculous abilities in the Bible are restricted to the age of the apostles and those that they laid hands on. So let's get more to what the interaction was here. Simon sees this, and he asks that this authority could be given to him, and he wants to pay money for it. And I think what we see here is Simon, he was an influencer, right? Everybody thought he was the great power of God. He claimed to be someone great. So Simon was somebody very important, and he had a heavy influence, it seems, on the Samaritan culture. People really thought he was someone great. And you imagine the gears turning as he's seeing this. He says, this is powerful. You know, and I was doing some things before that really amazed people, but now I can be the one to give the same ability to others. And you imagine that the power play 
is extremely tempting as Simon is considering this. And so passion and pride can very easily creep up again. But I think what we see with Peter's response is it's in salvation that we are equipped to overcome past sins. Baptism is not some quick fix or a rabbit's foot where our lives are stained with sin and we are immersed in sinful living. In baptism, God cleanses us. He forgives us of all of our transgressions, no doubt. But that doesn't mean we won't struggle with temptation. That doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with past sins. And really what that can become is an opportunity to overcome them in ways we were never able to before. And that gets us to Peter's rebuke. Do you think Peter was too harsh? Where do you think he learned to address sin like this? I think he learned it when, Pete, when Jesus looked at him in the face and said, get behind me, Satan, right? Um, that there's a need for being frank, for being gentle, patient, encouraging, as kind as we can possibly be. But sin is serious. And we always see Jesus treating sin very seriously. And we see that in the book of Acts as well. I don't think Peter's losing his temper here. I don't think he's shouting. But I think he is speaking frankly and very directly in a way that's very needed. Verse 20, he implies that he's going to perish if he stays in this attitude and does not repent of the sin. May your, may your silver perish with you. As if to imply, you deserve to die for this. <laughs> and you've got you to gotta get out of this. This is a problem that you need to get out of. And I want you to notice, he doesn't just deal with the symptom. He doesn't just say, you know, you should have said that. Or no, that's not, that's not the right way to think. That's not the right way to say. He says, he deals with the thought in verse 20. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Verse 21, your heart is not right before God. And in verse 22, notice that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He focuses on the heart of the problem. You know, the reason why we struggle so much with sin and being stuck in sinful decisions and sinful habits is too often we focus on the symptoms of sin and not the real problem. If we could learn through Jesus to realize that the problem is deeper than just what I said just now or what I did, it's not just that I feel guilty. You know, Peter paints a much bigger picture for Simon. The problem is the thought that compelled the word or the sinful decision. The problem is the heart and where we allowed our heart to go before God himself. The problem is we need to dig deeper into understanding our intentions. So again, Peter doesn't say, repent of what you said. He says in verse 22, repent and ask for forgiveness for the intention of your heart, right? We need to dig deeper into understanding sin and its origin. But he also deals with the poison enslaving power of sin. So I know last weekend, uh, Jake and Tiffany got food poisoning. And I can remember one instance in my life where I got food poisoning. And it is the worst internal pain I've ever felt in my entire life. And you know when I, when I realized I had food poisoning? is because my body was violently trying to get it out of my system. And it was incredibly painful right? He was in the poison of bitterness, enslaving. 
you're in the bondage of iniquity. My mom, as she's gotten older, it's kind of weird. She's gotten claustrophobic. So she got an MRI done a few years ago, and when they put her into the MRI machine, like you're in this like closed space, uh, she had a panic attack because she got like you know claustrophobic and got all panicked about the closed space, and so she had to get out. You know, she she just she had to get out. She takes like relaxers now, like she takes a pill or whatever when she has MRIs. But the idea of like if if we realize the bondage that sin puts us in, it's terrifying to want to get out. Verse twenty four. I read that as Simon is appropriately terrified. I don't see that as Simon saying, you know, oh, I'm not going to pray for myself, but please, you do that for me. No, I, I think he's saying, yeah, I'm going to pray, but man, you pray for me too, because this is terrifying. Sin puts us in a horribly, violently sick condition, and it puts us in a horrible position. And Peter was speaking, I think, with sober truth. This isn't about, Simon, you did a bad thing, or you feel guilty, or maybe you don't feel guilty, and you should feel guilty. It's no, you need, to, you need to see reality. If we see reality of sin, the reality of what it does to us, it's terrifying. And we will not accept it. We will not desire it. We won't want to live in it. I got food poisoning from my favorite food, fettuccine Alfredo with chicken. I still love that food, but not the kind of flavor from that particular one that gave me food poisoning. I can't eat that anymore. And it, I, I was thinking about it this morning as I was driving here. It was making me feel sick. You know, there's, just, there's a way it tasted, and that's probably why it was poisonous. You know, it's probably like raw. The chicken was raw. I don't know. But when I ate it, it had a flavor, and I can't eat that anymore, right? And again, how would that change our attitude about sins? Even if we, like, feel joy, like, oh, that felt good to sin, or that man, I think that protected me and actually helped me to to lie just now, you know? If we see things as God sees them, we're not going to fool ourselves or be deceived in that way. Peter ripped away the deceit. And Peter was clear. I struggle with this. I struggle with having the wisdom with this and being this clear. He wasn't afraid to say, you need to repent. You need to repent of what, what you've done, what you've thought, your intention, And he was clear that you've got to pray for forgiveness. And he encouraged him to pray that, if possible, the intention of his heart could be forgiven. Did you know that God's not a robot? That he's not a genie just granting wishes? You know, there's this weird sense where it's like, there's a humility and a reverence we should have that I shouldn't presume God's willingness. You know, this isn't like, oh, God, forgive me. All right, moving on. Oh, man, I'm glad I'm not guilty anymore. You know, that we don't deserve forgiveness. That's the point, right? So I think what Peter's saying is, this is dangerous. You've put yourself in this position. You need to pray. And it's not that God's not willing. We know he's willing, but that can be the dangerous thing. That we take it so lightly that God is willing to do that for us. And so pray, if possible, the intention of your heart. Don't presume God's some genie obligated to you. You know, you've put yourself in a dangerous position. Beg. We beg people for forgiveness when we need it. Finally, John. We don't really see John say much here, but I want you to go back to Luke chapter 9, and this is the last point of the lesson. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And the last time we saw Samaria by Luke's writing is in Luke chapter 9 verses 51 through 56. Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem. 
from Galilee. And he wanted to pass through Samaria. And for some reason, in this instance, the Samaritans were unwilling to receive him. They wouldn't let him come through. And so I want you to look at verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. You know, you imagine what Jesus was thinking right there. You guys just don't even know. You don't get it. You know, these people that you're making this generalization about, you know, just wanting to call fire down and kill them all. Those people, before that, do you think John would have remembered this? That the people that he said to Jesus, let's just kill all these people right now. That John goes back and immerses himself among them, serving them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you think that impacted John? You know, when we make broad generalizations about people, those may be the very people that God, if not now, if not next year, sometimes I think about the fact that every living being, people driving around out there, people around in restaurants, people that pass by coffee shops, God is relentlessly trying to save them. Every single living person, God is desperately trying to orchestrate a condition of heart, circumstances, whatever. God is desperately trying to save everyone around us, every single person. And John, the very people that he was ready to destroy are the very people that he now served and embraced as his brethren. It's powerful. So that's the lesson for this morning. I appreciate your patience as we worked through that and unpacked it. But if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, I would urge you to see the urgency of the gospel and everything that God is promising, both for those who will not believe, but also for those who do believe and are baptized. And if you're here and need to confess anything before the saints, whether it be sin or a need of encouragement, please bring it forward. Always stand and sing. Invitation. God calls.